Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane here on Friday, October the 14th. This week, a themed issue on surgery, and I'm delighted to be joined to discuss this, as I was last year, by one of my colleagues, Dr. Bill Summerskill. Bill, welcome. A, a great issue and, and a variety of content. Perhaps we could kick off, I think, with with the editorial, which I, I know you had a lot to do with. This is looking at the, the fundamental issue, really, isn't it? A key issue with surgery, and that is the whole business of risk and, in the non-cardiac setting. What was the sort of thrust for the editorial? Well, this was looking at uh, outcomes in England, Richard, and it showed that really for the general surgical patient, the non-cardiac surgery patient, that increasing age and comorbidity uh, really results in in serious risks. And there's what's regarded as a forgotten group, these people who have greater than 5% risk of death from surgery. One might think that that would be a very high-risk group of particular individuals, but in fact, just somebody who's aged 50 or over and has one coexisting condition, such as diabetes, would be put into this category, as would someone who is aged 50 but having to have an emergency surgery. So it's looking at how non-cardiac surgery can be made more safe, the same way that we have worked on improving outcomes in cardiac surgery. It looks at the fact that surgeons don't operate in isolation, but are parts of complex teams, and hospitals are complex organizations. One of the great aids is having the good anesthetic support and intensive care unit care for a patient afterwards. So that's another issue that comes up, and of course has enormous resource implications for the UK. Because to offer the safest service, one would want to be able to analyze the risk of a patient during their entire journey through hospital, which means having the personnel available to do that, the diagnostic facilities to support it, rapid access to operating theatres rather than having to wait until late at night, and a choice of different levels of post-operative care. Do you get a sense in this country and, and maybe beyond as well that we are moving forward in this area because the criticism has been historically, and this journal has written about it extensively, that one of the problems with surgery, that there hasn't been the evidence base from randomised trials that you would have with, say, uh, the, the use of a drug as, as an intervention. With surgery, it's always been more ad hoc and there's been great heterogeneity with the approach of different surgeons working in the same areas. Do you think we're making progress? I think we are making progress, Richard, on a number of counts. And that's why we shouldn't be too alarmed by this report. We should be alarmed by the findings. But actually, this is how change begins, with a report that identifies a problem. What would be alarming would be if the report was not acted on appropriately. To really improve care, it's looking at the different components of care. Now, this is stopping the heart during surgery, and that's a common procedure. It's done in cardiac bypass surgery, it's done in the pulmonary arteries, and that is kind of a myth-busting paper that shows that actually you don't necessarily have to keep circulation going to the brain when the body is cold, providing it's for limited periods of time. Other papers in the series look at surgery for refractory epilepsy, the types of people in whom you get good results for that, and then one looking at just the kind of risk factors that might underlie the Royal College of Surgeons report of mortality in non-cardiac surgery. This report, which comes to us from the Lebanon, actually uses data from the United States and shows that anemia, no matter how mild, is actually associated with a far greater risk of morbidity and mortality afterwards. And then the final paper, which is a 
a debate-stimulating paper, looks at the variation of surgical care at the end of life. We know that there's an enormous variation in medical care at the end of life. And I believe that in the United States, there's a figure of about one in five people will end their life in a high-dependency unit. And here they found widespread variation amongst people on Medicare as to the number of procedures and the timing of procedures towards the end of life. I suppose where the role of evidence comes in is not to hamper individual care, but to help to give us some understanding about when these interventions are going to be most valuable for people. Thank you, Bill, for that overview. And of course, I will just also ask you, we publish a series in the issue which has obviously a, a strong surgical theme, and that is to do with transplantation. Can you just give us a very brief overview of these papers? There's a lovely collection of three papers in the green section of the journal on transplantation, but actually the great introduction to that comes from a piece in the perspective section where it goes back to the origins of organ transplantation. And for anyone interested in the history of medicine, this takes us back to 1894 and a surgeon called Otto Lanz. And the whole proposal of what then would be quite fantastic that one could transplant organs in the body. And that actually accompanies our whole change from the view of the health of the body as a, a complete whole with certain balances onto a more contemporary vision of replaceable parts. In the series, there are three papers. The first one looks at a perennial problem with transplantation, which is how does one achieve self-sufficiency of organ donation? That's also a point that comes up in one of the editorials on a report launched by Nuffield. The other two series papers look specifically at kidney transplantation. One of them is really, I suppose, dedicated to keeping the transplanted kidney healthy, how to do that, and the other one keeping the transplanted recipient healthy, being aware of the fact that cardiovascular disease is, is such a problem in people who receive a kidney transplant and ways to minimize that. But you know, throughout the whole issue, I think there are pieces that people are going to find interesting. I was fascinated by the technology section, which shows just how high technology is transforming surgery. And surgery is such a big part of our lives. There's a film review which actually deals with issues raised by surgery. And a, a great perspective, ending up with a, an author who will be familiar to many Lancet readers, Anthony Atala, looking at his life and his contributions to surgery. I think it's a good read. We have lots of other material that will be published in conjunction with this issue to coincide with the American College of Surgeons meeting in San Francisco. There'll be other online papers, all reflecting the diversity and the importance of surgery and its renaissance as a serious research discipline from which we hope to be able to report more and more research developments in the future. Many thanks indeed, Bill, for, for that really superb overview of the issue. And, and it is a terrific issue. And as Bill says, most of us have connections with surgery in one way or the other. So I think it's a particularly important themed issue that will be relevant to many people call Lancet readers and listeners to the podcast as well who may not be Lancet subscribers. It's a terrific issue. Do enjoy reading it. But in the meantime, many thanks to Bill and to you all for listening. We'll see you next time.